0: He it's media guy, an internet computer guy. All right, well, um, get ourselves going here. So if you'll grab your Bibles and go ahead and turn over to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. uh, We're actually going to be looking at verses 16 to 23 tonight. So this will finish up chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And we're... Going to consider this thought tonight from this text. Have you joined the Church of the Unprepared? I started to say First Church of the Unprepared, and that sounded too much like First Baptist Church of the Unprepared, and so I didn't want to go there. But, but are you, have you joined the, the Church of the Unprepared? Now, specifically related to this text, the thought that we're investigating is that the subtle downgrade of worldliness is so imperceptible that it's easy to lose sight of the fundamental practices that ensure victory in the day of testing. It's easy to overlook the fundamentals, right? That's what I call them, fundamentals Those things that we're so used to doing that we don't even think about doing them, right? You don't think about tying your shoes. You don't think about brushing your teeth. You don't necessarily think about combing your hair. You know, those are just things you do, right? That doesn't mean you're you you do not pay attention. I mean, you brush your teeth properly, you comb your hair properly, you make sure your so- shoes are tied, but you just don't give it a lot of thought, right? Those are kind of fundamentals or funny mentals, what I call them. And as I have kind of digested this thought today as the day went along, I, I'm I'm concerned. That church and church life for most evangelicals has really just become what they do on Sunday, right? For some, it's ritual. It's routine. They're used to going to church on Sunday. They get up. They get the family ready. They go to church they may go to a bible study and have a degree of uh you know Sunday school type fellowship right which is good i'm not saying it's bad they sit in service and they sing the songs and you know they hear the prayers prayed and they sit and may probably listen to the message and jot down a few pointers on how to you know maybe deal with this issue or that crisis but Once the service is over and the final amen is said, then I think for most evangelicals, things of faith don't really cross their mind much after that. Until Saturday evening when they're getting ready to go to church again, they got to get the kids in bed at a reasonable hour, everybody gets a shower so that you don't have to run around On Sunday morning, you know, the kids get a shower, so you don't have to run around Sunday morning trying to get kids cleaned up and all that kind of stuff. That's that's the next intersection of time within seven days in which they actually think cognitively about things related to church. That's the best scenario. The not-so-best scenario is that for most folks who call themselves Christians, most folks who would call themselves evangelical, um, church is just something that is there to make them feel better. It's not even routine. They're they're not in a routine. If if their team happened to win the football game yesterday and they're in a pretty good mood, especially if they tailgated pretty hard the afternoon before, They may not even go to church because they're feeling pretty good about themselves. However, if their team lost yesterday and lost a heartbreaker in the last two seconds of the ball game by a field goal, then they may not feel so good about themselves and they may be more apt to go to church because church really in that scenario is there to encourage them and make them feel better about themselves. And then we got a whole host of people that don't even go to church. You know, the last time they were at church was at a funeral. Or somebody may have invited them to come to a Christmas service, or they might be there at Easter. And all of this is to paint the picture that the church has actually become a place of passivity and surrender in the world, a place of passivity and surrender in the world. It's passive in that the church today, the evangelical church, is not upset by the things going on in the world. Um, I can't give you the actual statistics, but it's still alarming to me that a percentage of evangelicals Thinks that abortion is okay. A percentage of evangelicals thinks that same sex marriage or same sex attractions is okay. An even greater percentage of evangelicals believe that the Bible doesn't say anything about whether women ought to be in the pastorate or not. There's a greater, even greater number of evangelicals who deny the Trinity deny the virgin birth, aren't sure that the Scripture has the answers to life, and is not really certain whether or not Jesus is going to return bodily. Evangelicals. You see, they've become passive to the things in the world because all of those issues, or at least most of those issues that I just mentioned, are hot-button social issues, right? And yet most evangelicals, or maybe some, say some, Evangelicals, a percentage of evangelicals, people who would call themselves Christians, don't care. They're passive. And because of the passivity of the modern-day evangelical church, we have surrendered. We have given up ground. We've lost ground. And we're just like, well, we'll cut our losses, and we will live comfortably. We'll live respectably. We won't make waves. We won't rock the boat. And every day that passes, a little bit of that that territory that was hard, hard fought is lost to the world. And all of it is because we are unprepared. I don't know whether you, how many of you even read the email that I sent out this morning with the outline on it. I don't know if you all pay attention to that or not. I know there are some who do. But if you saw the email this morning... You saw that I introduced our time tonight with a syllogism. And the syllogism went, and I didn't call it this, and I didn't give the major and minor premises, but it is a syllogism. And so the syllogism goes something like this, and I'm quoting almost directly the email. Major premise. The church that is prepared stands in contradiction to the world. Minor premise. The church is not being effective in standing against the world. What is the conclusion? The church is not prepared. I would argue, as my last bit of evidence in this rather lengthy introduction, that for all human pursuits that we all care to engage in, we would... Research it, would we not? If we were contemplating uh, an action, we would. In the days of the internet, we would research it. Right? We were just joking about mechanics using YouTube to fix cars. Well, they have to research it. It's worth doing right, isn't it? I mean, you could stick some bubble gum on it and wrap it up with a piece of baling wire and call it good. But you want to do it right that we are engaged in researching and preparing and knowing about what we're getting into before we get into it as, as individuals or as families, right? So we understand what it means to be prepared. As a matter of fact, we even have a saying. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. We have to be prepared. And yet the evangelical church, not the bride of Christ, I am making a distinction here, the true church, the bride of Christ, is prepared. They understand about being prepared, right? They are like the um, six virgins who put oil in their lamps and they trimmed the wicks and they were ready, right? They were prepared. Or the five that did and the five that... I said six. It was ten at five and five, the ten. The five that did and the five that didn't, they are the five. But there's an awful lot of others that are not. And so I, I want to just talk about three things tonight from our text related to being prepared, okay? Because I think the church is called to be prepared. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting at verse 16, reading down to the end of the chapter. Remember last time where we left off, Saul had in his pragmatism, got fearful because Samuel delayed and the Philistines were coming on him hot and heavy, right? Y'all remember that? And so he forced himself to offer the sacrifices to seek the favor of the Lord. And Samuel told him, gave him the indictment at the end of that text that the Lord was about to remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to somebody else, right? The people were abandoning Saul, the Philistines were outnumbering them five to one, six to one, whatever it was. Saul, uh, Samuel goes back to uh, Ramah, Ramah. Saul is left at Gibeah. We pick it up in verse 16. Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in micmash and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shuol, Another company turned towards Beth Haran. Another company turned towards the border that looks down to the valley of Zebuim, Zebuim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel (coughs) for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So... As a result of all this, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, but the people didn't. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us and for your continued goodness and grace upon us. And Father, we just ask that as we reflect upon the truth that you've given to us in this text, that we would never be satisfied with anything less than being prepared. So, Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive all that you have for us as we live as the church prepared, the church militant, the church victorious to be. And that we take every challenge, every situation, in the way that you have prepared us to do so. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask these things again in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to mention tonight related to this text is that the church is not called to rest in relative safety, but rather we must be vigilant and vigilant in watching what the world is doing. In uh, verses 16 to 18 of 1 Samuel 13, we find that Saul and Jonathan um, stayed in uh, Geba of Benjamin, and the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Uh, It's a little hard to understand really kind of what's going on here, but basically the two places mentioned in verses 16 to 18 are two hills with a valley in between, a relatively shallow valley. It wasn't a steep valley. It is very much analogous to the scenario that will be coming here in the not-too-distant future where um, the armies of Israel are camped on one hill, the armies of the Philistines are camped on the other hill within sight of each other, and Goliath walks out into the plain or the valley in between the two and taunts Israel. This seems to be the The methodology of the Philistines that they let their big numbers show, they let their perhaps, and I would assume that perhaps even people, Goliath or people like him, were there. They were big people and they were intimidating and they liked to scare their enemy, kind of like a lion. A lion will roar before he attacks to scare, paralyze the enemy. And so this seems to be the tactic. Of the Philistines. But what I want us to notice, and and it's not apparent here, we'll see it a little bit later, in that Saul never goes out to battle. Saul didn't go out to battle that started this, it was Jonathan. He was the one that attacked the garrison and woke up the Philistines. We'll see in the time coming next week, Lord willing, that it's not Saul that leads the army against the Philistines, it's Jonathan. Saul. The king stays in the rear with the gear where it's safe. And the picture is that the church tends to do the same thing. We like to stay off the front line. We like to stay in the back. We like to maintain the supply lines. We don't want to be out in the trenches up front. It's dangerous. It's dirty. You don't sleep well. If it rains, you get wet, and if it's hot, you get hot. We don't like being up there. But you know, the church has not been called to the relative safety of the rear. The church has not been called to observe what's going on on the front lines from a distance. (coughs) The church is actually a garrison in enemy territory. If you think about that, think about Peter's words to the exiles throughout Asia Minor. We're we're foreigners. We're exiles. We, We don't have friends around the corner. We live in a fallen world. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ situated in the midst of a lost world. And so we are on the front lines whether we like it or not. Well, let me put it this way. If you're in the church, you're on the front lines. And if you're not on the front lines, I don't care what you call your organization, you're not a church. Where would the social issues of our day be if the church was willing to engage the community with the truth of the scriptures related to those issues? Where would the issue of same-sex marriage be If the church would stand up and say, the Bible is clear throughout Old and New Testaments, same-sex attractions are an abomination to the Lord. You cannot have a same-sex attraction and be saved. Paul is clear about that. Where would where would we be socially about the abortion issue if the church would stand up and say children are a blessing from the Lord? Every child conceived is conceived in the image of the Lord. We have the Imago Dei, right? With the image of the Lord, we are made in God's image. Every child. Where would we be in terms of the corruption we find in all of our our systems of governance, to one degree of another? If 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 we would just stand up and say, no, the Bible says we are to use equal measures or fair measures. We are to not um, take advantage of the orphan and the widow. We are to care for the sojourner. I mean, all these issues, where would we be if the church would simply stand up and fight for what the Bible says is right? I would suggest that if the church did this wholeheartedly, uniformly, cohesively, that we wouldn't have these issues. We wouldn't have the social hot-button issues that we face today. But see, the church, and again, I'm making a distinction between the bride of Christ because there are churches that are doing this. I'm not saying every church doesn't. I'm not saying every church is retreated to the rear. There are churches out front. There are churches in the, in the trenches, in the combat zone. There are churches that are, are leading the fight. but most, of, a lot of them are not. A lot of churches in evangelical life today are concerned about how many people watch their podcast, how many people attend to their services, what does their balance sheet look like. That's really what they're concerned about. It is true that in our text tonight, 16 through 18, that the raiding parties and i want y'all to notice this the raiding parties came out of the camp in three companies one company went one way one company went a third way a second way and the third company went a third way I think the phraseology raiders or raiding party is important here this is not a full on assault they're not engaging in battle between the two armies they're just harassing The Philistines are just coming out and harassing the Israelites. But isn't that true of the world? The world, although it claims to be um, engaging in open warfare against the church, really is just harassing the church. Christ has already won the battle, and the world can't win. They know that it's a losing proposition But if they can scare the church bad enough to where we retreat back into our quiet little pews and not confront them, then they can do what they want to, which is exactly what the Philistines were doing here. They're just trying to scare Saul and his army. They managed to chase most of Saul's army away. It's just a force of about 600 with Saul at this point, and the Philistines are just doing whatever it is that they want to do. And the world... Is doing whatever it wants to do, because it has frightened most evangelicals into sitting quietly in their pew and not rocking the boat. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, we find these words. James tells us in verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So James tells us that it's not if you meet various trials. Did you notice that? James does not say, count it a joy, my brothers, if you meet trials. He says, count it a joy, my brother, when you meet trials. I think we've forgotten this principle within evangelical life. We've gotten so, we, we worship the idol of comfort and convenience and and we don't want to meet trials, we don't want to confront people, so we kind of withdraw. But if we don't encounter the trials, right? If you the trials of various kinds, if we don't encounter those trials, if we run away from those trials, if we try not to rock the boat and leave the trials to somebody else, then we don't have any testing of our faith. Right? Did you see that? James says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Where does the testing of faith come from? It comes from the trial. Right? And if you don't have the trial, you don't have the testing. And if you don't have the testing, you don't have the steadfastness. Why is it that most evangelicals today are so toast about most everything. It's because they don't have steadfastness. They've never stood in the face of trials. They've never had their faith tested. They, they are mealy-mouthed and double-minded, as James alludes to towards the end of the passage. Verse 4, he says, "...and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." You see... God doesn't just bring us into his family and then leave us to figure it out on our own. Most of evangelicalism follows that model. I, we attended a church, and for the early years of my ministry, I actually served under a man, a pastor that I love and respect dearly. But he worshiped the God of evangelism. He was all about evangelism. Man, he would be out in the streets evangelizing everybody. And he encouraged the church to go out into the streets and evangelize everybody. And we were to go and preach the gospel to the rocks and the trees and the birds and whoever would listen and some of those who wouldn't. And I was with him with it, on it. But his great commission stopped right there. His great commission did not include room for teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? Great commission that the Lord gave to his disciples going to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the evangelism part, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the discipleship part. And lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. That's the authority part. It was all about evangelism. And we did outreaches, and we went to houses on every Monday night, I believe it was, Every Monday night was church outreach. We were in the neighborhoods, we were knocking on doors, we were inviting people to church, we're sharing the gospel. But once somebody came to faith and accepted Christ as their Savior, walked the aisle, signed the card, joined the church, got baptized, we did nothing with them. We dropped them. Absolutely nothing. You see, that's not real evangelism. Because we weren't teaching them what it meant to be a Christian. We didn't teach them how to live as a Christian. We didn't teach them that when they accepted Christ as their Savior and were regenerated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that that marked them out as no longer being in the world. They were actually seen as a traitor to the world, and it was open season on them. We didn't teach them that. And they ran from trials They avoided conflict like the plague, as our church did as well. We avoided conflict like the plague. Our pastor did it. Our church did it. Those within the church did it. All the new converts did it. And none of us had our faith tested, and none of us were standing steadfast. None of us. We're not called, church, to rest in relative safety. Rather, we are called to be vigilant in watching what the world is doing firsthand. Secondly, the church is not called to be content with letting someone else do the work. (laughs) But rather, we must be vigilant to sharpen our skills. Before I mention that Saul (coughs) has a habit of not actually going to battle, and if you think about it, when we look back, if you think back to that episode several weeks ago, see either at the end of chapter 12, I think it was at the end of chapter 12, where the Philistines went into the town, they threatened to gouge out the eye of everybody and the right eye of everybody in that town, right? Y'all remember if they didn't surrender? And what did Saul do? Did Saul actually confront the Philistines at that point? No. No. He sent out word to all of Israel that if they didn't show up, he was going to kill their ox. And so many people in Israel showed up that the Philistines were overwhelmed by the numbers of Israelites that showed up. And God routed them, right? Saul didn't. So even in his greatest conquest, Saul wasn't in any danger. He let somebody else do the work. We find here something very interesting in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19 to verse 21, okay? And as you're reading this, you may go, well, this is kind of odd, right? We're in the middle of this narrative, and then all of a sudden, there seems to be this parenthetical note in verse 19. Now, there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears... But every one of the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines to have stuff sharpened. Isn't that kind of odd? Well, let me help you connect some of the dots. Do you really remember way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, in the days of Eli, when Samuel was but a wee lad, that the Philistines came against the nation of Israel And they trotted out the Ark of the Covenant as a trump card, thinking that God was just going to wipe out the Philistines because they had the Ark. Right? Y'all remember that? And you remember that the Philistines whooped up on them and took the Ark away from them? Right? That predates where we are now by probably 40 to 50 years. That was 40 to 50 years ago that that happened. And the Philistines... Though they are lost as a goose and they're pagans, are still quite shrewd. Forty years ago, they said, you know what? If we have trouble out of these Israelites and they've got weapons, then our trouble is going to be a lot more difficult for us. So let's do this. Let's gather up all the blacksmiths and take them back to Philistia with us. Right? And that's exactly what they did. They gathered up all the not just the blacksmiths, but all the tradesmen. Anybody who possessed a skill or craft went back with the Philistines and went into the service of the Philistines. So it was twofold. You bring the best of the craftsmen back with you, they start doing stuff for you as spoils of your conquest, and you leave everybody else there with no way to make weapons. If you don't believe me, think about Samson. Samson was a judge during this period of time when the Philistines had already conquered Israel. They were dealing with the Philistines in that now Samson you know, was not necessarily pure in all the things that he did. But think about how Samson killed all the men that he killed when he killed them. He killed several, I think it was 10,000 of them, with the jawbone of an ass, didn't he? He, uh, he did, I, that's the one I remember. There are other instances where Samson killed people, but in none of those instances, go back and read it, none of those instances did Samson use an iron implement. Sword, spear, he either did it with his bare hands, jawbone of an axe, or uh, an axe, a jawbone of an ass, or he pushed the pillars of the temple apart so that the whole building fell down. He lived in a period of time when the Philistines had removed all weapons of iron from the nation of Israel. You want to know something? The leaders of Israel knew it. They knew about it. They they knew, as verse 22 alludes to, (laughs) that if somebody had to have an axe sharpened, they had to go down to one of the garrisons of the Philistines and pay money to the Philistines to have their axe sharpened or their plows repaired because there were no blacksmiths in Israel. I'm drawing the parallel between this account here and the modern church. The modern church, because it, our people are not prepared, the church is not prepared, is quite content with letting somebody else do the work. They are quite content to let secular counseling be the main counseling that a lot of church folks get. They are quite content with letting secular medicine be the medicine that most church folks get. They are quite content with secular lawyers and secular financial advisors and secular whatever. They're quite content with letting the world do the work that they send their church members to. They are quite content with letting parachurch organizations actually feed and take care of the poor. They're quite content with letting parachurch organizations deal with hot-button issues like Human trafficking, they're quite content with letting parachurch organizations do evangelism and missions, and so all that the church has to do is just sit back and let all the other people do the work. And you want to know what the result is? I don't think you could find anybody in the modern evangelical church to do the things that need to be done. Nobody knows how to do it. Biblical counseling, counseling, though it is on the rise again, and within Reformed tradition, biblical counseling is very much part of what the elders of the church do. But not every church has biblical counseling or people qualified to give biblical counsel, including the pastor. Isn't that sad? The church doesn't have people qualified to that know how to care for the homeless. They don't know how to feed people who are undernourished. They don't know how to prepare young couples for marriage. They don't know how to deal with the various and sundry issues related to child raising because we're not prepared to do so. The world has taken all of the craftsmen out of the church and taking them back into the world so that now the church, when they need something done that requires somebody of skill, there's nobody within the church to do it. They have to go to the world to get it done. Now, y'all may not like what I just said, but it's true. I realize that there are Christian doctors around, Christian counselors around. I realize that there are Christian financial folks around. I got it. And at times when we have to have things done, I guess if we don't have anybody within the church that can help us with that, then we ought to go to those that are truly Christian first, and then whatever their profession is second. But don't make the mistake of thinking just because somebody calls himself a Christian counselor that they're going to give you biblical counseling. Can I get an amen from my esteemed colleague in the back? Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian doctor doesn't mean they're giving you biblical medical advice or financial advice, right? This is one of those areas when we went through Deuteronomy a number of years ago that I got a lot of eyebrows raised at me where I said something akin to what we learned um, in the early parts of 1 Corinthians. Right, Paul says it is a shame that people within the church go to law with each other before pagans. And his point is, why can't why can't you settle it within the church? Why can't you find the authority within the church to help you settle the difference? And that is exactly what Deuteronomy teaches us: that the church ought to be the final arbiter in all matters related to people within the church. Now, I got it? I understand that we're talking about within local churches. I would hope that we would have cooperation among sister churches, and I would argue, submit to you, that we are beginning to see some of that within the 1689 circles in Baptist life. But there's still this big problem that we're quite happy letting somebody else do the work. Is it messy? Is it time-consuming? Is it inconvenient? to deal with the problems that people have? Brothers and sisters within the church, is it inconvenient to deal with those? Yeah, it is. Trust me, it is. But you know what happens when you do? It sharpens your skills. You're, you're in a sense, forced to go and find what the Bible says about the particular issue a brother or sister is having. You are forced to study it, meditate upon it, digest it so that it becomes part of who you are so that you can then turn around and give them biblical counseling or biblical advice or show them a biblical example of what it is that they need to be doing and thereby be sharpened in your skills and increased in your faith through the trial that you just went through with another brother and sister in Christ, brother and sister in the church, right? But when you have a brother or sister whom you go to church with, whom you sit on the pew with, who comes to you out of in confidence and says, I'm really struggling with this in my life, and you say, you know what? There's a really good counselor at First Baptist wherever down there that can help you with that. Yeah, just let somebody else do the work. Right? And we're not called to do that. We're not called to be content with letting someone else do the work. We're actually called to do the work and be better prepared for it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Right? We've heard that before. We go, yeah. That's like that's like the the battle cry of the evangelical study to show yourself approved. Yes, yes, yes. Well, there's more to it. Verse sixteen. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them, as Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So let me break some of this down. What happens when you actually devote yourself to the hard work of studying to show yourself approved, right? When I say study to show yourself approved, I am specifically saying that we study the Word of God to address the issues that we face together as a church, right? We're, we're not letting somebody else do it. We're actually confronting it. We're doing the work. When we do that, <coughs> irreverent babble stops. Irreverent babble stops. Empty, vain words among the brothers and sisters stops. When the brothers and sisters are studying, meditating on the Word of God to show themselves approved. Because they realize that those types of words are not befitting a Christian. And they don't, they don't do it. They don't let those around them do it. right? Because irreverent babble stops, people are not led into ungodliness. So ungodliness stops within the church when the church is studying to show itself approved. A workman that need not be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God, right? This ungodliness doesn't spread like gangrene. That's the next thing, verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Their ungodliness will spread like gangrene. It's a disease, it's an infection, it's a cancer within the church. Do you see? <laughs> Here's a principle that we can begin to see right here, that the demise of the church starts when the church abandons the personal study of God's Word and implementing it as we are confronting one another, loving one another, helping one another in this life's journey. If all the church wants to do is show up on Sunday morning, listen to really cool music, watch some sort of video presentation on a jumbotron, And then be challenged to live a socially good life by a 20 minute sermonette, that is the demise of the church. Now it may take 30, 40, 50 years, but historically, churches that have migrated away from the preaching of the word have begun to disintegrate. Because ungodliness spreads like a cancer. People swerve from the truth, just like he's mentioned Hymenaeus and Philetus. They swerve from the truth. They're no longer speaking truth. They're no longer communicating truth. They're no longer actually preaching sound doctrine. They're saying the resurrection has already happened. They said Jesus has already come, and if you were a Christian, you'd be gone by now. Wrong doctrine. Error. Which now we're into the point of salvation. You know, it is teaching things that are contrary to the gospel of Christ. And we all know what Paul told the church at Galatia about people who preach another gospel, right? You see, that happens when we don't shoulder the responsibility to to take the work that the Lord gives to us. We can't be satisfied with letting somebody else do it. But here's something else. God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. Blessed be the man who does not walk in the counsels of the wicked or stand in the paths of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season and its, with, its leaf does not wither. Not so are the wicked, for they will be blown away like chaff. Right? The contrast to Psalm 1, God knows whose are his. Who are the ones that are his? They are the ones who listen to what Paul said in verse 15 and doing our best to present ourselves approved, not being ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. And then lastly, the church is not called to live in passivity, but rather we must be prepared to stand for what God says is right. Back to 1 Samuel 13. <laughs> Saul and Jonathan... Hiding in the hills, Saul for forty years, not rectifying the problem that there were no blacksmiths in Israel, right? Just letting it go till it comes to the day of testing. Comes to the where the rubber hits the road. Brass tacks. This is the day of proving. And 20, verse 22 says, So that on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people. How in the world are you going to march into battle if your army has no weapons? Are you going to go in and kill them with kindness and, or hit them with an insult and pick up their weapon? There's a movie... This is not a recommendation, but this is just an illustration. There is a movie called, I believe it's called Enemy at the Gates, and it's about what was happening during World War II in Stalingrad. It was a stalemate. Germans are on one side, Russians are on the other side, Germans are dug in, Russians are trying to, to get them out, to clear them out, and there are several scenes, and especially the opening scene of that movie, is the Russians, the military tactic that the Russians used and are still using primarily today is overwhelm them with mass numbers, right? But what I found interesting in the first scene of this movie (coughs) is they're sending two men out. There's a line of two men. The men get off the boat. The battle is up front. The Germans are up there. The boat pulls up. The troop carrier pulls up, drops the gate, Guys are getting off the boat. Well, as they're getting off the boat, nobody's got a gun. Nobody. And so there's two lines of men. One line gets a gun. One line gets a clip of bullets. And an instruction. If the man in front of you falls down and drops his rifle, pick up his rifle, load it, and shoot. How crazy is that? that you would send a man into battle with a gun with no bullets or the bullets and no gun? Who in their right mind does that? Well, apparently the Russians did. Saul and Jonathan did. Now, we will see next time that God delivers the Philistines into Jonathan's hands, not Saul, Jonathan's hands. And God does that, okay? We'll, We'll cover that next time. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any urgency to correct the deficiency. They're being passive about it, just letting it ride. Maybe God will come down and save the day. Maybe the thunder will come and, you know, whatever. Maybe God will intervene. But you see, that sounds an awful lot like, to me, a very presumptuous attitude, right? Oh, don't worry, We're not Bible study? Nah, we don't need that. God will take care of that. Evangelism? No, 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 no. God will take care of that. Bringing people into the church, transforming lives, saving marriages, stemming divorce, eradicating and abolishing abortion within our nation, beginning to put, the, to, to close down the avenues for same-sex Marriage in our nation, oh, oh, well, God, to take care of that, right? Wrong. God's called us not to be passive; He's called us to be active, and we have to stand for what God says is right. It's as simple as that. There was neither sword nor spear in any of the army of Israel, and they're about to march into battle. And as sad as that sounds, what's sadder is that the church has neither Scripture nor verse in its hand. And it's trying to do battle with the world, the the ruler of this fallen world. And we're getting defeated. And we come to a point where we say, well, what's the use? We tried and we got beat. We tried and we got beat. We tried and we got beat. We just keep getting beaten. It's because we're not prepared. We're sending evangelicals into a battle against the German machine gun nests. One has a gun, one has a bullet. None of them are put together, and they're not prepared. Only when somebody falls in death do you either pick up the rifle and load it or pick up the bullets and load it to begin the fight. But that's only after you're in the middle of the battle, and being in the middle of the battle is the last Point in time where you need to start being worried about being prepared. You need to prepare before you go. I don't remember who said it, but that was a quote that I wrote, read in a Sunday morning sermon here within the last couple, three weeks that battles are not won on the battlefield, battles are won in preparation for the battlefield. That's where the battles are won. And the church is not prepared. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 46. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When then, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus said, look, you don't know when it's going to happen. Don't go through life pretending, oh, well, you know, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins said that we're going to be medevaced out of here. That's the left-behind guys, right? It's astonishing to me. I talked to a fella today. Today. I wasn't making a reference to the eschaton at all. I was actually making a reference to our economy and how it's probably going to be bad for another little bit before it gets better. And he automatically assumed that I was talking about the end of days, the eschaton. And he said, oh, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. We're going to be out of here before you know it. Well, brother, I don't share your view. But it's, it's frightening to me the number of evangelicals who believe that they don't have to do anything because, hang on, brother, the chopper's coming. Pop the smoke. Here it comes. Care flight's on the way, Brother. That's how they feel. That's what they think. We don't have to do anything because Christ is going to take us out of this. We're going to be... We're going to be uh, I've even forgotten what the word is now. I've been reformed so long. Um, what is that word? Raptured. raptured. Yeah, we're going to get raptured. Thank you. You're not as reformed as me. <laughs> 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 we're going to be raptured out of here. What are we worried about? What do we have to preach for? We're going to be raptured out of here. That sounds an awful lot like hyper Calvinism to me. Isn't that funny that a dispensational is telling a Calvinist, oh, we don't have to worry about it. It's going to be okay. God's going to take care of it. And the Calvinist is going, no, you better get out there and get to work. But you see, that's where a lot of people are. That's where a lot of evangelicals are. What do, I, what do I have to do the hard work for? Christ is going to take me out. Well, Christ might very well take you out, but it may not be what you're thinking. Right? No. We're called to be prepared. And in our preparation, we are called to be the hands and the feet of Christ to our brothers and sisters in the church, I would say first, and then to the world at large. And that we don't just rest in safety, whatever that means, and we don't let somebody else do the work. And we don't live with passivity to the things going on around us. But they we're actually being salt in light. If the salt has lost its saltiness, is not good for anything, is it? But as salt Salt doesn't lose saltiness. True salt doesn't lose saltiness. Salt is salty. And light, though it may be extinguished by a number of different factors, is not diminished in and of itself. Light is light. And unless we just want things to continue the way they're continuing, we're going to have to Get out and do some work. But we're going to have to be prepared first. Right now, our church is undertaking a program in our men's fellowship to make preparation available to every man in this church. We are working through men's fellowship to teach the men of our church how to study the Bible effectively, right? We call it how to study your Bible. It's the inductive methodology, the inductive principles of Bible study, which are time-tested and true. And it is a way that we can learn how to read and understand God's Word, men, so that we can teach it to our wives and our children, and so that we can take the Bible and know how to use the Bible Scripture for godly counsel in various scenarios in life. We're doing that right now. And I would encourage the men here tonight and the men that are listening to me via this recording or maybe live cast. If you have not absolutely availed yourself of that resource, you should. We're recording it so you can go back and watch it if you need to. There there's some here tonight that have been faithful to that, and I thank you for that. But, you know, we ought to be encouraging other men to do the same, and we ought to be encouraging other men to come and listen to that teaching. We ought to be encouraging other men to listen to the videos. We ought to be sharing the videos with other men. It's that important. We ought to be sharing it with our families as we can. Why am I saying that? Because we have to be prepared. Right? There's not a man in this room that if he was going on a hunting trip wouldn't spend days getting his stuff together. Right, You would make sure you had your snacks. If you're going camping, you're going to make sure you got your food. Right, You're going to make sure you got your weapon of choice, your bow, your crossbow, your rifles, your shotgun, whatever you're going to do. You, you're going to have all of your rain gear. You're going to have all your cold weather gear. You're going to have your camp slippers so that your feet don't get cold when you have to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Right? You're going to have everything. We ought to be prepared. We know how to be prepared. We just, in this area of our life, evangelical area of our life, we just don't pay it any attention. Maybe it's not that important. It is important. Let us commit not to join the church of the unprepared, but let us be salt and light in the world as Christ has called us to for His glory for the growth of the church, and for the revival that we all continue to pray for. May God so take our feeble efforts in obedience and multiply them so that there is truly a revival among God's people and in the world at general, and that Christ be exalted and God be glorified and sons and daughters be saved. Amen. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We continue to praise you for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace. And we just simply ask, Father, that in the hearing of your word, that we would be struck to the heart. That we, in many cases, are not prepared. Or in some cases, we think we're prepared because we've followed our little ritual. But, Lord, really, are we? Are we prepared? Isn't it shown in... Whether or not we engage those around us with the truth of the scriptures at those times of testing, or do we shrink back and hide in our relative safety? Father, in every heart within the sound of my voice, I ask, Father, that you would convict us all of where we are not prepared as we ought to be, and therefore not standing boldly for you. And that, Father, you would bring the preparation that we might truly be salt and light in the world. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. Well, Lord willing, we'll see you guys next week. this season.